Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Douglas Bell. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Nick Lloyd, a reader in military and imperial history at King's College London, about his new book, The Western Front, a history of the First World War, published by Viking Press, and recently named one of the best books to read this summer by the Times of London. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Great. Looking forward to our discussion. Um, I was wondering if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book. Well, um, you know, I'm a historian of the First World War. I've written, this is my fifth book now. So I've written, you know, a fair bit about the war in that period. Um, and I've generally written um, sort of studies of, of different elements of it. So mainly battle studies. I'd, I'd written a, a book on the 100 days, a sort of final period of the war. I've written a book on Passchendaele, which is the most, one of the most sort of infamous battles of the Western Front. And, and after that, you know, I was, you know, they had various book ideas going around. And um, any author will tell you this. They've got a number of projects on the go or the projects they would like to do. And then, of course, it's the process of trying to square it away with your editor and get it through that process. So, you know, you, you were going through it and there were various projects that I was very keen on and they didn't seem to work out. And I wasn't sure what to do. And then it was literally like a bolt of lightning. I just woke up one day and I knew that I had to do the Western Front because, you know, and I, I realized this very quickly. And as soon as I, I knew this, I thought, well, why didn't I? think about this sooner it's such an obvious choice it's such an obvious move for me so it's a very strange one but anyway um i thought look i've done individual battles i'm at a point now where i want to i want to do something bigger not just in terms of word counts which is the biggest book i've written but in just in terms of scope just moving out uh, into my field a bit more so um so I thought, you know, I've done individual battles. Let me do the whole front. I want to do the whole thing. I want to bring in the French. I want to bring in the Germans. I want to have that cohesive account of the entire Western Front, which, you know, I, again, I'd only really researched, you know, snapshots of it. So doing the whole thing I found was very exciting. And as soon as I said it to my publisher, look, let's do something bigger. Um, you know, I've got to a point in my career where I feel confident enough, able enough to, to stretch my wings, as it were. So let's do this. And as soon as I uh, talked to them about this, they were very, very keen. And uh, and they said, yeah, this is the right thing. So, you know, literally the following week, I was started writing it. So I think it was just for me, it was just getting to a point where I felt able and willing to actually do something more definitive and do something that is going to hopefully, um, you know, last and will be something that many readers can come to that which will tell them exactly what they need to know yeah great um so in in writing this big book of the western front you chose to write it from uh what military historians are called the operational level of the war can you decide to talk about why you chose that as your perspective and maybe some of the advantages and disadvantages 
Yes, well, we uh, you know it's quite a technical term, I suppose, but it really refers to the the, the sort of the generals' war, if you like, um, mm-hmm. and the way that command operates and the way that battles are conducted. So it's a military history that focuses on the battles. It's quite unrepentant in that sense, mm-hmm. um, and for me, that's where my interest lies, and that's where for me the heart of the war is and it's certainly at the heart of a lot of the myths and misperceptions of the war so you know we have this long-running myth about lions and donkeys and butchers and bunglers which is in some ways the most enduring memory of the war that people have and many people if they don't know a lot about the war if you if you mention you know lions and donkeys or the first world war these are the images that crop up immediately so it's a very strong sort of cultural um idea that you know, many historians have challenged this over the years, but it's still mm-hmm. sort of firmly rooted in, and I talk about Britain mainly, British popular culture about the, the generals and this kind of thing. So it was a good opportunity to revisit that. But for me, I wanted to tell the story of how the, how the battles are run, how, these, um, how the war is fought and how it changes, and the people involved, how they get caught up in this terrible cataclysm, how they try to evolve, how they try to react to what's going on and ultimately how some fail, some succeed, um, some get better, some don't seem to learn. And so leave it up to the reader to make their own mind up. But I wanted to put the reader in the position of those individuals, those generals, so that they can sit beside them as they make these decisions and then, you know, question them, what would I have done? Do I think this this person's doing the right thing? Would I have done anything differently? Am I, you know, can I see them making big errors? So I just wanted to humanize them because I think it's such a misperception that they were kind of heartless butchers and somewhere, somewhere very good, somewhere much better. And, you know, just getting into that whole subject, I felt was quite important and quite compelling. Right. So can you maybe give some examples and talk about some of the the generals that have had this really uh, negative perception about them uh, and what... And how that, where that comes from, perhaps. And could you maybe talk about, you know, you mentioned Brit- that's really strong in British culture, but also maybe some of the the German or French uh, generals that have this idea about them as well. Yeah, well, there's you know, there's there's a number of main characters through the the book. You have uh, General Joffre, the French commander in chief, uh, who will become. Um, you know, one of the great heroes of the war, but uh, still sometimes seen as this kind of uh, old-fashioned commander that doesn't really react well to the war as it continues. You have uh, Erich von Falkenheim and Hindenburg and Ludendorff, they're the main German generals, and their story and the way they approach it. And often these generals have quite different approaches. So you have someone like Falkenheim, who, who sort of essentially leads Germany in the first half of the war, and is responsible for the attack at Verdun. And Falkenheim is is an interesting character because he very much tries to balance German the German war effort between East and West. And to, he sees the complications of this and the difficulties of actually pulling resources from one to the other and all the complications, all the compromises that you have to make. Hindenburg and Ludendorff start the war. They, they make their reputation in the East. And, of course, they're constantly trying to drag more resources East. And they don't see any need for compromise. And, and they believe that they need to win in a total decisive victory. And that's what they tried to do in 1918. So it's very interesting seeing these characters and how they develop. 
Um, for the French, of course, we mentioned Joffre. He uh, essentially saves the French army in 1914 with his uh, counterattack at the Battle of the Marne. And then, and then tries to break the trenches in 1915, but doesn't succeed and is ultimately kicked upstairs the following year. But he really is still an important character. Um, and you have other characters which, uh, you know, get promoted through through the early phases of the war. So you have someone like uh, Philippe Pétain, who becomes French commander in chief in 1917. I think his story is very crucial because he, you know, he's very good early in the war in terms of what he understands the battlefield is and, and what the French can and cannot do. But ultimately, in 1918, he's just a little bit too pessimistic. You have someone like Ferdinand Foch. He becomes Allied Generalissimo in 1918. And what he goes through, he loses his only son in 1914, but is able to continue. And the arguments he has with his commanders about what they could do, should they do this, should they do that, should they have more of a limited, attritional style of fighting, should they try for the breakthrough? And he's not sure about that. And you know, the, the, the debates go on throughout the war about, you know, how do we fight in this new difficult arena called trench warfare that no one's really ever seen before and nobody knows really what it's going to take to make that go away. So they were some of the characters that, you you know, are very strong throughout the book. Um, for the British, of course, we got Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, who, you know, he was undoubtedly the most controversial commander in British history commonly condemned as a butcher uh, although many people have tried to defend Haig over the years and um, my view on Haig is, is somewhere in the middle I think he has strengths but ultimately he's not what I would call in the first rank of commanders that the Western Front sometimes produces um, but I think you see the, the the fact that how the war really it 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 sort of you know if you get things wrong in the first world war even a little bit you can get absolutely smashed so it really um, forces you to make key decisions and it really sorts out who is good and who is not so good. Right. I think that really uh, comes through. You can kind of see how these uh, generals are struggling with these big, massive decisions and trying to figure out how to uh, fight on on the Western Front in, in the trenches. So building off of that, can you, can you describe maybe how these generals learned what was the learning process uh, or and who learned maybe the fastest or understood what was happening i mean the war lasted a long time it went through lots of technological changes but it seems like uh, this idea of the offensive which is something that you mentioned a lot it, it's kind of always there but they're also learning at the same time so i wonder if you could talk a bit about that learning process yeah, that is very interesting. And I think, you know, they, they're faced with a war that it, it, they don't expect, in a sense, when the war goes to ground in ni- the end of 1914. And they know that they're going to need a certain set of tactics and technologies, but they're not sure how much they're going to need and at, at what level. So they, they, they realize they need more artillery. The problem is you can't just, you know, you can't just produce artillery, particularly heavy artillery and the number of shells you need like that. So it takes time. So you have to work out ways of fighting that tries to break the front. And by the end of 1915, they all they have really, certainly for the French army, they are trying to break through. So it's predominantly a French and an allied problem in the early phases of the war is they have to mass manpower. They have to mass their divisions in certain sectors, try to smash through as quickly as they can, which will then, in theory, break, sort of shatter the front line. And then you will kind of have 
maneuver warfare restored. And once you get the armies moving again, then you can have the decisive battle, which will, again, in theory, end the war. The problem is they just can't do it. And they increase the amount of firepower and manpower each time, but it doesn't really work. So by the end of 1915, you kind of have a dichotomy appearing between those commanders who say, the breakthrough can be achieved. We just need more guns. We just need more men. Next time will be different. We just need more shells. And those other commanders, someone like Pétain, he says, actually, you know what? We can't fight in this way anymore. We can't break through. We need to go. We need to fight in an attritional way. So we use the artillery to smash the first line of trenches, destroy that completely, occupy it by our infantry, and then stop. And then if the Germans counterattack, we can kill them. We can we can shoot them down. And then we, we bring up the guns and we do it again. But we fight not based on maneuver or not based on trying to break through, but based on just trying to nibble, just trying to bite through these, you know, these incredibly dense defensive networks. So what you see throughout the war is whenever the British or the French make an advance, they do something good. They break through three trench lines. They they use some new technology. The Germans will respond quite quickly with usually building another defensive line or increasing the number of machine guns or artillery. So, you know, the British, the French managed to break through on the 9th of May 1915. They managed to take Vimy Ridge, go through about three trench lines. They've actually broken through into open country, but they can't exploit it and they can't get enough manpower to widen that breakthrough because of the communication problems, which nobody ever really solves in the war. So you have these huge communication problems as well. The problem is they try to do the 9th of May in September on a bigger scale. So they say to the guy who would masterminded that, Pétain, do it on a bigger scale. You'll be promoted. You can... And he says, well, you're going to need so much more guns. And by the time we're going to do this again, they've built another series of three or four trench lines. So it can't mm -hmm. be done. And so you have this constant process of learning and response, which is, in is incredibly frustrating. But I think it illustrates that. And people need to realize that when they're going to judge these men is that once you make an advance, the Germans will respond. And therefore, it makes a constant process of innovation until you get to 1918, where you get a kind of culmination of a lot of these developments. So that story, I think, is, very, is a very interesting story, and it's at the heart of the book. Yeah, right. I think that that really comes through, especially when you're talking about, uh, when you're writing about uh, Pitan. And so talking about Pitan, uh, you you mentioned in the book that you think that the the French army has been made undervalued by historians. Uh, why do you think that that's been the case, and what do you what do you try to do differently uh, to show how important the French contribution to the war was? Yeah, I think it has been undervalued, and I think that, you know the reputation of the French military. You know, we, we joke about it and surrendering and this kind of thing. And in the terms of the First World War, nothing could be further from the truth. The French are the biggest army on the Western Front, or the biggest Allied army, from the first almost to the last days of the war. They take the bulk of the casualties. They make all, a lot of the main innovations, not all, but they like, you know, they, they, they're, they're doing some incredible things with artillery fire in 1915. They're doing creeping barrages. They're using poison gas as a, a, a counter-battery weapon to take out German uh, artillery. Um, they're using infiltration tactics, so they they are they're doing the things that Germany will tr will do in 1918. They're doing a, an early version of that in 1915. So they're making all these innovations. They're taking the blood cost. Um, 
And certainly in British memory of the war, the French, I mean, we might know a little bit about Verdun, I suppose, but, you know, the, the true extent of the French war and what they try to do and how important they are seems to have been missed. And our Western Front basically ends just south of the Somme. That's where we, we, we go and we know that area. And further south is, you know, is, is not really known so much. So I think, and, you know, from, from my perspective, writing the book, I wanted to tell the whole story of the entire Western Front. So you can't get away from the French army. And you do very much see that in the book. And I wanted that to be kind of novel and new for many readers, that they're, they're taken into that part of the war. And at least in the early phases, the British are, are barely in it at all. The British will become more important as the war goes on, but you have to you have to reckon with that, I think, to tell the whole story. So, yeah, I, I think it is very much a a kind of tribute to the French army in the First War and what they went through and what they tried to do, and you know how effective they were in many cases in an inter- you know in a terribly difficult situation. Right, I think that uh, yeah, as I said, it really uh, comes through in the in the book. And uh, I, I was very uh, convinced by your discussion of the French army. Can you uh, maybe talk a little bit about uh, the the German army? And um, so they're facing these defenses uh, or these assaults. They're fighting a two-front war. They're blockaded. Um, and how the German army proves so durable through this entire war uh, with their situation? They do. I mean, they're in um, they're in a, a position where they're strategically on the offensive because they're in occupied territory, but they're operationally and tactically, you know, largely operating on the defensive. Um, and you have an army that is widely regarded as one of the best in the world, if not the best, and has a very good cadre of officers and NCOs, which gives their units a kind of toughness um, and a survivability, which is actually very, very rare. Um, and so they're excellent at the tactical level. They have they, they generally have more firepower and heavier guns than the Allies do. So they they, they have they have better medium and heavier howitzers, which gives their attacks and their defenses much heavier punches. Um, and they have good weapons and and they have good training. Um, and they have a, a sort of initiative at the lower level, which means they can react very very quickly. They're not like some armies are. They, they don't show a lot of initiative lower down because that's not deemed important, or in the German army it is. Um, but you still have huge problems higher up the chain of command about German strategy and where it should lie in the east or the west, whether you can win in the west or you can't, or whether you should win in the east or, or whether actually you can't win in the east. So you have these debates that go through. So um, Falkenheim and Hindenburg and Ludendorff have huge arguments and huge disagreements about this. And so that's part of the story as well, which is a sort of a wider story. But it it, it really shows that the, the German army, you know, most of the German armies on the Western Front, and it has to be there because of the enormous attacks that's coming their way. But they're also able, they have a sort of freedom on the East to do other things, to experiment um, and operate in a, you know, in a vaster arena. So some of their lessons that they learn are, are different lessons, but um, also applicable in some cases to the West. So the, I think the German story is also, you know, central to the book. Right. One of the the generals that really comes out on the German side of the war is uh, Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria. Can you? And he's not like Falkenheim or Ludendorff 
or Hindenburg. So he's often maybe not discussed as much. Can you can you talk a little bit about his role in the war? Yeah, I mean, obviously he's you know he's from Bavaria, so he he occupies a slightly different, slightly if you like, slightly lower um, peg in the in the German or the Prussian hierarchy, if you will. But he becomes uh, an army commander and then an army group commander. Now, in the German army, the the commander wouldn't usually command; the chief of staff would command. So, which is quite different to the Western tradition. So, the chief of staff usually would be a younger officer straight out of the Prussian War College who would be very, very good. And they would often do the day-to-day things and the, the commander would be more of a nominal head. Now that is true to a certain extent, but Ruprecht is a kind of a figure who is, I think, very alive to the costs of war and very alive about trying to shield his men from the disaster and the horror. And of course, as the war goes on, he becomes increasingly alarmed at the strategy that Germany is adopting and the kind of the difficulties they're going to have if they're going to make peace because they're, they're simply not going to compromise, particularly with Hindenburg and Ludendorff. So he becomes, a, you know, in some ways he's a passenger, but he's also, I think, aware of, of you know, what they need to do if they are going to make peace. So Ruprecht is a figure that, again, is, is there was a recent um, excellent biography by Jonathan Boff, who, whose work is, is excellent on Ruprecht. And it really illustrates how much we don't know about these characters. And one of the things I found when writing the book is that actually finding good sources, even sort of anecdotal sources about many of these generals is quite difficult because we have, we know a bit about Hindenburg and Ludendorff, we know a bit about Falkenheim. And when you go down to the army group level or even the army level, these characters are largely unknown. Um, and trying to bring them to life was actually quite a real, quite a, quite a challenge for me. And I hope I've done it with some of them, but too often they're just seen as these kind of cardboard cutout Prussian Junker type figures like Ruprecht, that's not really the case at all. Um, and their story is a very interesting and an important story on the Western Front, how these royal figures, you know, who saw the war, understood the war, reacted to it and tried to try to fight in the best way possible without losing a sense of sort of humanity, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I was wondering, um, so in 1917, the... Uh, the United States joins the war. And I think in the United States, we like to think that we basically come in, we bring our manpower and our material and and our presence just wins the war. Um, So I was wondering maybe if you could talk a little bit about what do you think the American contribution is uh, to the war and to the Western Front? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. And it was one that I wanted to think about and I have thought about for a while. I think in some ways there's, I think the Americans are downplayed in terms of their impact, particularly with sort of British uh, historians. Uh, again, they, they tend to sort of say, well, of course the Americans are important, but the predominant reason we win is because of British battlefield excellence or, or whatever it might be. I think the American role is crucial. And I think it's crucial for both the moral uh, boost that it gives the Allies in, in April 1917, where the Allies are at their lowest ebb, they're at the point where the French are in mutiny. They've just failed again on the Western Front. Uh, and the British are going to go their own way at Passchendaele. So the American entry keeps the Allies going because they know there's something to look forward to. But the question is still open-ended because the question the Germans ask is, okay, the Americans are in, but are they really going to build an army? Are they really going to be able to do this? So they don't take it seriously. So it's it's only... It's only really by 1918 that you really begin to see the impact of the American entry. And 
Of course, the American entry puts a question mark on Germany for the continuation of the war. And it's one of the reasons why they opt for a decisive final attack in the West in 1918, Operation Michael, 21st of March 1918, because they know they have a window of opportunity. They know that if they if they leave it, then the Americans are going to be able to bring more and more manpower across. And so they're never going to win, even if they don't think the Americans are really tactically very good. But of course, once the Americans actually begin to take losses and show that they are actually on the Western Front in strength, which you do see by the summer of 1918, then it's game over for Germany. And everyone realizes that because you know, the Americans are going to be very strong. They, they, they might be green, they might be a bit clumsy, so on and so forth, but they are very good learners and they're going to get much better. And that's, of course, one of the big decisions why Germany goes for the armistice when she does, because she knows that she could potentially hold out a bit longer. They could probably get most of the army back to Germany, probably. But if the war continues into 1919, the Americans are going to be formidable. And they are going to go into Germany and do, you know, so so that that is a crucial thing. So from my perspective, and I start the final, the third final part of the book with General Pershing arriving in France. And I very much wanted to bring the Americans in because I don't think the Allies win the war without the Americans. First of all, if they don't come in in 1917, I think there's big problems between the British and French. And I'm not sure the French can continue the war. I think they are then, from 1917, they're essentially in a defensive mode. Mm -hmm. And the British can't win the war on their own. The British can't go on to the offensive and win the war on their own. So the British can't do it. The French can't do it. And secondly, the American boost of manpower in 1918 allows the Allies to counterattack on the Marne and also drag significant German resources down to the Meuse-Argonne, where they have to be there because the Americans are there. So... The American, it's not just the American sort of moral benefit. It actually is a military thing as well. So from my perspective, it's clear the Allies can't win without American entry. Yeah, great. Um, you, you talk about how in War One or on the Western Front that war became modern. Um, can you talk about what you mean by how war became modern? Yeah, I think I think this is because we tend to have this idea that First World War is entirely static. There's no no innovations. This is sort of repeat of uh, stupid frontal assaults of four years, and this is the myth of the war. But if you actually understand the tactics and technological changes in this period, you'll be astounded. So we can just go through a list. So this is in four years. Remember, this is not ten years. This is four years. Think how long we've been in Afghanistan. Um, right. So. You know, you have you know the air power. So in 1903, powered flight is created. By 1914, air power is still seen as somewhat eccentric. By 1915, you have the first air-to-air combat, air reconnaissance, aerial photography. By 1916, you have air attack. You have battles for control of the air. Um, by 1918, the British are photographing their entire or their sector of the Western Front. You know, twice a day, every day. So you have full, that, that air power is integrated into artillery fire. It's inter- integrated into infantry attacks. You have, so you have birth of air power. That's, that's one thing, which is a revolution in war, which creates a 3D battlefield. You have artillery. You go to war with essentially horse-drawn light guns that have, w- will be drawn up behind you know, battalions in a, in a quasi-Napoleonic 
sense. You know, by 1916, most of the firing is done. You can't see your opponent. It's done. Um, they're taking, it's much more scientific. So they are using all kinds of scientific tools to measure air pressure, wind. They are using very sophisticated fuses. They're firing what we call off the map. They're doing things like creeping barrages. So they'll move the artillery forward. The infantry will will follow. It's highly sophisticated, highly technical, you know, very difficult to do. By 1918, they don't need to pre-register artillery, so they can just fire without ranging shots, and they can be accurate, so they can um, they can regain surprise. You have things like rifle grenades, mortars, gas, chemical warfare is invented. You know, again, I haven't even got started yet. Tanks, Fr- from a standing start, the British are able to dev- invent, devise, build, and deploy an entirely new military technology in less than 18 months. So the tank comes in in 1916. Okay, you might say they're not that good in 1916, but in 1918, you have fleets of fast-moving Renaults. You have heavier French tanks. You have the British Mark V, which is pretty good. You have, um, you, you know, you have armored cars. You have sophisticated signals, intelligence, and wireless. So you you know you by 1918, which most people don't realize, is the war has been totally transformed. Steel helmets gas masks into something that is it's not the same in 1914 so you have an absolutely vast range of changes that take place which which you know people are having to try to work out how all this stuff can be used and integrate it into you know a system that are you know can actually fight so whether you think some of the generals could have done better here or there is is besides the point I don't think many people can deny the enormous revolution in warfare that we see between 1914 and 1918. Yeah, completely agree. So after working on this book and thinking about the Western Front, um, what do you, th- what do you, are there any areas of research uh, that are overlooked um, that have been missed by historians in researching and writing about the Western Front? Yeah, I still think there's a lot to do. And I think, you know, the the British part of the war, I think, is is being covered quite well. And we've seen a lot of very good research on it in terms of actually the dynamics of how the army functions and different elements of it and different battles. Um, I still think large sections of the French army are underwritten. Um, there's large numbers of very important characters. There's, we still need biographies of key individuals. So, um there's a number of French army group commanders, very senior, very important figures that we know almost nothing about. There's virtually nothing written on them. Again, it's likewise for Germany. Many of the key German commanders have been basically ignored. We don't know their stories. So in terms of the generals, you know, there is so much we need to, you know, so much potential work out there on particularly the German side and the French side. Um, so, you know, there's there's vast amounts we don't know. We 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 know... You know, for example, General Nivelle, the French commander who takes over after Joffre, really important character, rises very quickly and falls very quickly. But he's a fascinating individual. We just don't really have good, detailed biographies of these people. So I think just in terms of the generals, that's a, that's only a narrow section, really. Um, there's a vast amounts we could do. Uh, and I'd love to see some really good biographies of some of these not necessarily commanders in chief, but perhaps that lower level, the army group, the army commanders who were involved in how the battles function. But again, we just don't really know a lot about them. So, you know, that's just one aspect of where 
you know, historical research can still add significantly to our knowledge of this period. Yeah, it seems so surprising, especially if in, uh, the war was 100 years ago when we celebrated the centennial, or not celebrated, but marked the centennial. And mm. there's still so many of these important figures in the war that uh, remain under research. Um, what do you think are, are some of the lessons of the Western Front for military officers and strategic thinkers today? I think that's a great question. And I think the Western Front shows the the importance of essentially humility in terms of what you can do on the battlefield, understanding not coming to warfare with too many preconceived ideas. I think understanding history is important and having guides as to what you can and cannot do, but don't slavishly follow them. Always be open, always be willing to see what the battlefield tells you. And from my perspective, the best commanders on the Western Front are those that are open to change, are open to, okay, what do I need to know? You know, what don't I know? Whereas some of the commanders that don't do so well come to the Western Front with the understanding that I know everything. I know what war's about. I'm experienced. I've been trained. So whatever's out there must coordinate, must conform to what I know. Whereas the best commanders go there and they think, as soon as they see the Western Front, they think, I'm going to need to change. I'm going to need to think very carefully about what I do. It also points out the absolute urgency for operational analysis. Looking back recently on what goes on, what we know, what happened, how we can improve that. You know, So operate rigorous operational analysis of what has happened, trying to find out what went wrong, what went right, um, rather than simply assuming it's going to be better next time. So I think there are many lessons the Western Front can can bring us about leadership, about operations, about trying to react quicker than your opponent, about trying to integrate lots of new technologies quickly. So there are many things the Western Front can still teach us about warfare um, today, even though it might seem anachronistic. Right. I think those are some uh, yeah, important and uh, bigger things and ways of thinking. Oh, very good. Um so we've taken up a good deal of your time, but um, I'd like to ask you the the last question that we traditionally ask, and uh, that is, uh, what what book project are you working on next? No, that is a great question. And well, we're doing the Eastern Front. So um, as I started work on the Western Front, I thought, you know what, I've got to I've got to do the whole thing now because the book is concentrated on the Western Front. And I allude to, I mention things going on on the other sectors. So I might mention the Battle of Tannenberg or something on the Italian front or Gallipoli. But I won't really go into them because they're not central to the story, as it were. But as I was going through the Western Front, I thought, you know what, I've got to do this. So, um, you know, the publishers were very keen to do this as well, which is great. Um, I was very, very fortunate. So I'm currently writing the Eastern Front, which is the second volume. So this is going to be a trilogy. This is the first of three. and it will, when it's all done, be you know a complete trilogy on the history of the First World War. So, you know, uh, the Eastern Front is going to be fantastic. It's going to be totally different to the Western Front. You know, it will be written in the same style, so it will be sort of it will be my work, as it were. But it will be a, it's a totally different place, totally different characters, and it will take people that may be reasonably familiar with the Western Front to totally different places. So I hope it will be really refreshing. So the Eastern Front is what I'm doing now. And then I will, as soon as that's done, 
I will go to the third and final volume, which is what I'm calling the wider war, which is the war in the eastern uh, war in uh, the Middle East and Africa. So that will be the third and final volume. So I have uh, lots to keep me busy. Yeah, sounds like it. That sounds like two great projects, and looking forward to it, reading them when they're complete. Um, so. I wanted to thank you again for uh, being here and talking with me today. And I really enjoyed your, our conversation. Thank you so much. It was great chatting and uh, best of luck with the podcast. Great. Thank you.